Carrying huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. How's it? And welcome back. This is Moving the Needle Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Nietling, and this is going to be a fun show because I've been very curious about all these amazing bikes I get. Often I'm interviewing fellow riders, people from the industry, and I have managed to nail down the head of mountain bike engineering at Scott Sports because as I've released this, you see that fancy new Scott Genius and Genius ST. It's out on the trails. Uh, if this is released on the day or afterwards, is an exciting time to be part of Scott. But for me, I want to help you guys just understand in general, how does a bike get designed? What are the challenges? How does it get to market? So first, we're going to chat to the engineering side because you obviously want to know how they design it, why they do what they do, and uh, how it benefits you guys. So I'm going to welcome Tim Stevens to the show. How are we doing? I'm good, thanks. Needles, good to be here. Nice. So, head of mountain bike engineering, what does the team look like that, say, worked on this bike or any bike? You know, how many people would you say are involved? So, my team is obviously myself, um, the head of the team, and then I have uh, four guys um, on my team um, another British guy, um, a German guy, uh, French, and a Swiss. And typically on something like the Genius, it would be a minimum of two engineers working on this, um, sometimes three. I feel like that's a joke. If that, if all you engineers from that many countries walked into, say, an Irish bar, there'd be a <laughs> yeah, joke. Exactly. There'd be a joke that came out of that. Yeah, which bottom bracket standard would we choose? <laughs> there we go. So, yeah. Well, awesome, man. Um, are you pleased? Are you happy? Are you relieved? What's it like once you've launched a bike that you've probably worked on for a long time? It's uh, it's it's really it's a good feeling because like I've come from um, my background in engineering is aerospace engineering where you work on your very very small cog in a huge machine. You work on projects that last fifteen or twenty years sometimes, or ten or fifteen years. Really long projects. You never really feel like you um, you conclude a project but with bike engineering you're working on two to three year projects and you go from really like the beginning of the concept to presenting to the media like we did in in Aosta this is a very satisfying it's a very satisfying conclusion to a project so um, it's uh, I wouldn't say there's relief there's like <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's really cool for the project to be out there and everyone to see what you've been working on and stuff. But there's, it doesn't mean the project is done. There's still there's still um, stuff to be done and uh, follow up work and stuff like this. So yeah, we, it doesn't. It's not like suddenly we uh, we don't have anything to do anymore. So well, uh, speaking of that, working on a project two three years. How long would you say this project? took or when did you guys decide and and sort of start the process what does that look like for the end consumer um i would say weirdly we you kind of start as a as an engineer you start the process almost when you're doing the the previous version of the bike like i did i've been at the company long enough now to this is now my third genius iteration so 
having done i was the lead engineer on the on the genius we released in model year 2018 so even doing that project there are things that you think ah uh, if only i had more time to be able to integrate that i could have done this you know but i can't do it for this project so it has to wait till the next one so um in some ways you start preparing for the the next genius when you're doing the one that you're already doing but the the work starts like properly starts around two years before i would say middle of 2020 um we were uh starting like properly starting on the genius um but then discussions and like maybe some small research projects and stuff like this happen can happen before this so it's quite a long it's quite a long time but this really goes from like okay first kickoff project to uh launch and then um yeah follow-up work after the launch how do you sleep at night? How do you switch your brain off if you're already thinking about the next one before the previous one's been released? Uh, yeah, the, your world does re- revolve, especially <laughs> does revolve around bike, especially if you ride a lot for pleasure at the weekends and in the evenings. So it's different. Some it depends. It depends on the person. I think uh, some people are are um, bikes is is really their their world, so they. They're happy to be immersed in it completely. Um, I quite like, I'm into other sports as well, skiing and stuff. And I'm from a place where uh, where I did a lot of sailing and things. So I like to do some, um, um, some holidays or when I go home, back home, I tend to switch off a bit from bikes just to have a break. So then when I'm back, I'm, I'm fresh and excited again for, for riding bikes in the mountains and stuff like this. So uh yeah it can be it can be quite full on i guess when your 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 work day is really into the technical side of bikes and then you're riding at the weekend and then you find a problem with something you did or whatever do you even enjoy some of your rides if you're like mm, i think that's the issue you know you're just not even able to switch off but i do think it's pretty critical that engineers and and the people in the bike industry that's what makes it awesome is you guys do love riding and you do ride the bikes yourself and a lot of you especially yourself are super capable so um, the feedback you get from riders you can kind of understand it you're pushing the bikes as well that's probably a key component i think to to this industry yes yeah it's crucial like you can't you can't be a bike engineer and be detached from riding um it's in some in some ways there are some aspects of it that help it's good to have brains sometimes from other industries to come in or ideas um you don't want to get tunnel vision and stuff but you you have to know the product you have to know the uh the market you have to know the customers you have to know where they're ridden and um yeah how they um yeah the durability and stuff like this You, you have to be riding them a lot and if we're talking specifically about genius this is probably the bike that I enjoy the most. Um, it's yeah, it's what I it's what I ride the most. It's my all rounder bike. So to work on the Genius has always been a bit of a pleasure of mine. Uh, it's yeah, just gets most of my I think my ride time. I ride a lot of stuff cross country to downhill, but I think Genius is the one that gets the most uh, the most amount of my my personal ride time. I'd say so. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to agree with that. Uh... I was riding a lot of Spark and obviously the Spark's got the new frame design, ran some more enduro side, but modern trail bikes, they're sneaking towards the enduro side. But um, can you help me understand 
now with technology, especially with uh, you know, a lot of things that I don't understand, but you guys are designing these things. A lot of the things that you design uh, on the computer are very close to how they are uh, in out in the real world. So prototyping versus testing, that seems to have sped up a lot from back in the day, but correct me if I'm wrong. What, what does that process look like now of getting a first writable prototype to to how it performs versus how you thought it would be maybe from your drawings and the kinematics and, and that side of it? Um, I'm not sure this process has sped up um, in terms of like performance of right feel. You, you still need to... Um, you still need to manufacture some things and write test. Uh, this hasn't changed so much. Um, you, as your experience grows in, in being able to calculate kinematics and, and the different aspects of uh, anti-squat, anti-rise, um, leverage ratio and this kind of thing and how they interact with damper tunes and stuff, this comes with experience and, and then you might be able to nail something quicker than you might have been able to with less experience, for example. But um, what what has enabled us um, to do, let's say, you could say be faster or um, take the same amount of time but do it more detailed, um, is uh, strength and stiffness analysis. Um, we have a, an in-house finite element analysis team. You um, very clever chaps that do a lot of analysis on our layups. We do all the layups in-house ourselves. So we are able to do lots of iterations before we even go to making a frame um, in terms of tweaking the, well, obviously we've got to make it stiff enough, uh, strong enough. And this has to pass our proprietary tests that we have. Um, and then we do some um, uh, analysis in, in, like we can we can afford to do extra analysis in the software that we might not have a test machine set up for, or we might not have um, the capability to do that test, but we can do electronically. Um, and we can then do a lot of tweaks and, and, and everything to, to, to optimize the stiffness and weight uh, um, optimization. And also how the bike behaves under different circumstances, like uh, the, the stiffness feel of the bike. This, a lot of this we can now do um, in the computer and it gives us uh, a really good base to start with and the more you do this the key with finite element analysis is that you you have to put in good inputs to get good outputs and then you need to verify it with real world testing whether that's right testing or in the lab um, and the more you do the more loops of this you do the more accurate your models get so we always improve the models to get uh, more accurate depending on the results that we get so uh, the more over time they get more and more accurate um, and so this this for sure helps a lot but what we find is i think that maybe we we don't end up speeding up the process we end up being better at it we we have a better product at the end of it i think because we, we can do more iterations we can yeah yeah so at the end of the day the end consumer gets a gets a better better product is what i'm hearing um but now to the fun stuff uh what did you want to achieve with the new genius uh, because the the previous model now was a very popular bike, and every time I get these bikes and the new colorways and the new suspension design, I'm thinking I don't know how they're going to outdo themselves here. So the, over to the fun stuff, you know, how 
cool was it trying to incorporate these ideas you had even when you were building last genius so you know what was the goal and what did you guys achieve with this this new genius um the last genius i love that bike that was as i said earlier that was i think is my most used bike over the last five years um and when we did that in 2018 we we made quite a big step towards the more modern geometry that you now see on trail bikes um and scott I, i've been at scott for nearly 12 years and when when i arrived it was quite conservative in terms of geometry and spec um i think most of the brands were at this time 12 years ago um and this genius was the first time that we 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 made a big step in geometry um this was about the time of um uh, chris porter um with the geometrons pushing the limits on this and um, you know, there was a lot of chatter in, in let's say, this, the very small niche brands about this geometry stuff. So we did a lot of checks and uh, and testing uh, in-house for this. And we, at the time when we released that bike in 17, we were one of the first brands to really come out with something that was like, uh, with that generous in reach and that slack for that kind of category of bike. And so we were quite, I'd say we were quite, ahead of the time with the big brands at that point which was which was really it was a really satisfying feeling to have as an engineer uh, who's leading that project um and the new bike it's it's like a, we had a really good base to work from um so the obviously we with the with the spark was a huge uh, the the 2022 spark was a was a massive leap in terms of the change we had from like the, the spark before obviously the shock integration so it was clear that we wanted to integrate integrate the integration should we say bring over the integration we had on the spark into genius so this in itself is a huge challenge engineering wise um but we also we wanted to make the the bike feel stiffer and more capable um the last the last genius uh had a, a very nice feeling in terms of its consistent stiffness front to back um but we find now i mean that that bike is now yeah we were developing it in 2017 so it's like four to five years old and we now find that these the trail the bikes in this trail bike category 140 150 let's say um they're they're being used to a to a high level a more more it's blurring the lines between trail and enduro so obviously with with the new genius that was one thing we wanted to do is make the bike feel more capable um we had pretty good basis on the kinematic so we just did some fine tuning a bit of the kinematic um the leverage ratio for example is a very similar progressivity we 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 just flattened out the curve a tiny bit which makes it a bit easier to to match with the tune of the shock anti-squat is a bit higher braking response is kind of similar um and we 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 updated the geometry just to bring it uh kind of um up to the the modern day standards because uh again that bike was four to five years old so a little bit longer steeper seat angle um quite a lot steeper seat angle and push the reach out a bit so that when you're in the seated position you're not too close to handlebars and a slightly longer chainstay length to balance out a little bit the reach. Um, so yeah, there's uh, obviously the biggest the biggest change visually is is the integrating everything inside, and then some fine tuning on the 
on the performance side, should we say, and then lots of like fine details, which uh, you don't see in the articles so much. But like when you when you check the bike, you take the shock cover off, you see like the the sticker that tells you your your shock settings and and the instructions on the cover to show you your cable routing details, um, your sag indicator and things like this. A lot of effort in the details. Yeah, but this integration is interesting and some people might think it's marketing hype or it's just a change for the sake of a change. Now, I can say that it definitely looks awesome, right? But some people might say, I prefer old school. I don't like change. But what about what it does for you from engineering side or ride characteristics? You, We've spoken a lot offline about that. It's not just for look and it's not just to, say, protect your shock from weather. It's got all these pros, but there's some real awesome like ride characteristics, which I think come out in the bike. You know, it seems like you've got more of the weight down the bottom. You can build it stiffer there. Like, I think you can notice these things uh, off the bat compared to the old one. Yeah, it's um, obviously the shock is very well protected. Like a shock suspension has a really hard time on a mountain bike. Uh, let's be honest, like with the the forces and and uh, everything that it has to go through, and then on top of that, you're you're throwing dirt at it the whole time. Like just the worst enemy for a shock. So you stick it inside inside and protect it. Um, it's going to perform better for longer. It's like it's it's a fact. Like you you need to still um, undergo the recommended uh, service intervals uh, for the shock manufacturer because it's it. These recommendations are not based purely on like the exposure to dirt and dust, um, but it's it's clear that you're yeah you're going to keep a very expensive and um, and a highly engineered part of the bike like more protected. So this is a clearly big advantage. Um, the the structure that we have to build around the shock um, is it's it's efficient and. Uh, um, a very stiff structure uh, it enables you to have a very stiff connection between the front and the rear of the bike so that you don't get this feeling of riding a bike where you 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 have a very stiff front end but the like uh, the rear is like a noodle um which in some of our bikes uh, several years ago um i think uh I, I can't remember when you joined us but i've ridden the two-year-old the two version ago genius i would i would say that had some of that maybe yeah there's the genius lt i think it was model year 14 so we're going back a while that one was um that was back when enduro bikes were not that much travel and then we come along with a 170 170 enduro bike um and obviously it was it's it's travel capability i would say outstripped its stiffness capability in the back so you would you would be riding it, but you'd feel that the back end was not it was not stiff enough. So, uh, on this, uh, what's interesting is when you put it on a stiffness bench and you measure it in the lab, you can get you can get a good stiffness reading, um, but it doesn't. It's not true to reality because the mainframe was so stiff that it gave an incorrect. It gave you a false perception of how stiff it was when you ride it. You'd feel that yeah, the front was really stiff, but the back was not. This is not good. You need a good consistency of stiffness. So the structure that we have on the bike, because we have to have like a large tube, uh, um, thin tube section, it creates a very, a very stiff, stiff structure, and the the linkage is obviously very wide, uh, where it connects to the seat stays, and so you have very efficient um, 
trans transfer of force and stiffness, stress and stiffness through the through the frame, and um, less uh, stress on the shock because the frame is a very stiff structure around the shock. Um, so this all helps as well. Um, yeah, and the some like added added benefits of having the shock inside is we we obviously need the access door, but then this makes it extremely easy to to route the cables and to do this kind of maintenance. Uh, whereas on other other bikes, often you have to it's the most frustrating thing in the world is if you need to change your dropper post cable and you need to bash out your BB, and then you smash you break your BB because the bearing breaks when you hit it out with you know your tool or whatever. And our bikes don't need to do that because you have this nice easy access door. Uh, shock is very easy to take out. It's no 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 worse than a, than a than a shock that's outside. You've got the same number of bolts and you just pull it out the hole and then you have full access to all the cables and stuff like this. So um, yeah, from the outside it looks. You see some comments and people are like, oh, this everything's inside is going to be so easy, difficult to work on or whatever. But when you actually work on it. It's not hard at all. You just uh, it's just a different way of it's a different way of doing it. Like you, you have to learn like the best way to do it. And then you're like, Oh, well actually, no, it's not hard at all. Yeah. I mean, I guess people are often resistant to change or, Hey, it works so well this way. Why, why do something new? That's what's fascinating with, with you guys from the engineering side, obviously it's technical work and, but you guys have to be also creative and it's problem solving and it's finest, which is super interesting, but you've said a few words that maybe, Maybe I don't even understand them to their fullest extent, but you're going to have to bring it down to layman's terms, not uh, uh, sending someone to the moon uh, verb here. Uh, you said kinematics. Maybe if you can just give us like a quick overview. What's kinematics? And then what's this uh, anti-sag and these other things that you guys as engineers have to keep a close eye on and, and sort of figure out their relationship? Because some people hear, oh, it's got good kinematics, or we've changed the kinematics, or it's less progressive. People go, okay, well, what does that mean to the end consumer? So maybe well, I don't like, know what anti-sag is. I think you anti rise. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I definitely need all this thing. I just get on Case the ride. Point, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when when people refer to the kinematic, they're referring to um, basically the position of the suspension pivots and how that changes the behavior of the bike. So a kinematic, uh, the term kinematic is used for like a linkage system in engineering. So the kinematic of the bike, um, the position of the pivots, all the pivots of the suspension is very important. Now, uh, there are a number of things that you have to consider all the time. Um, the most talked about ones are the leverage ratio, the anti-squat and the anti-rise. Um, so that the leverage ratio is if I go through each one individually. And you've got to try do this in a sentence, right? Yeah. To in, in someone that's sentence, never really heard it. Good luck. The leverage ratio is the relationship between the movement of the rear wheel and the movement of the shock. Ah. So um, it's just a lever, basically, like a simple lever. If you have a long arm, it's easy to push it and you get a lot of force at the other end. If it's a short arm, it's hard to push it and you don't have a... A lot of force at the other end. So, when the rear wheel goes through the travel, it's it's the um, mechanical advantage on the shock is changing. And this, uh, what we do is is define how that mechanical advantage changes. So, when we refer to a progressive leverage ratio, it basically means that the mechanical advantage uh, on the shock is 
um, is reducing so that it is harder to compress the shock at the end of the travel, basically. And a regressive is the other way around. A regressive you don't really want because obviously the harder you hit it, the easier, the further into travel you go, the easier it will be for the suspension linkage to compress the shock. So then you have a very harsh bottom out. I'm so, with you. I'm with you. That part that, does I that knew. make sense? No, that okay. part I knew, and I hope we're educating more. But some yeah. of these other terms that I don't really use on a day-to-day -day basis, but I, I love that because it does make sense. You would think you don't want it too easy to bottom out. And some mm -hmm. bikes in the past have been too linear, as, as a term I use, and, and they're not fun to ride because the harder mm -hmm. you push them and the bigger hits you hit, you just sort of have no support, we call it. Yeah. But there's, it's not quite as simple as that. There's a lot of factors. You, it's also to do with how it feels at the beginning of travel, how it feels in the middle of travel, how it feels at the end. And if you have a bike that has a leverage ratio curve that is too progressive, you'll find that it's actually difficult to, uh, to get enough support. There's a, um, a common misconception um, that um, lacking support means lacking progression. It's not really the same. You can actually have... Um, uh, a something a bike that is too progressive either because it has a too progressive leverage ratio and or the shock is too progressive i.e. the person has the rider has put too many spaces in their shock um, progression spaces in the shock um, and then what they find is then they can't use full travel so they reduce the pressure to get full travel but then they're very wallowy in the mid-stroke and you don't have the support you, you feel like you just burst through travel until you hit this progressive ramp at the end. And then this is not good either because you, you don't have this support. So your BB then is, you're riding dynamically too low. You're smashing your pedals all the time. And then you hit this ramp of progression at the end. And this unsettles your feet. Like if you're a flat pedal rider, you might bounce off the pedals. Um, and you don't have this consistent feel. And so it's, it's really, it's very uh, difficult. Um, and then you, when you, when you take into account the shock as well, the damping and the, the, the spring curve on the shock, you have to match them together with the leverage ratio. So on the what I said at the beginning of this this part about the, the mechanical advantage, this is the basic part of why we do it, but it's quite complex with the with the shock when you when you when you consider the shock as well. So we work very closely with Fox and Rock Shocks, um, <clears throat> especially with our proprietary uh, nude shocks to make sure that the tunes and the compression ratios of the shock, uh, which is basically the difference between starting volume and ending volume of the uh, air spring in the shock, are matched uh, very closely with our curves. Um, and this is one of the main fundamental aspects of how a bike feels when it rides, especially when you're going downhill. And very that crucial. is why there are these very smart people that design bikes and speak together and get you the most optimum performance. So you don't have to tweak it too much or worry too much. No, thanks, for, thanks idea, for explaining yeah. that. And what about a quick brief one of the other terms that you referenced here that you guys as engineers sort of play a quick role? Well, they don't play a quick role. They're a huge role. But for us consumers, we barely know what they are. So anti-squat is probably the one that's let's say most publicized i guess um this is it's effectively the um the resistance to movement in the suspension uh when you're pedaling so basically <clears throat> when you uh do a pedal stroke forward 
uh, you're you're accelerating the bike forward, um, but you have a mass transfer due to acceleration of your body weight, which wants to compress the suspension at the back. And uh, anti-squat is the level with which the chain, the forces of the chain, resist this compression of the suspension. So. The theory is that at 100% anti-squat for a certain uh, centre gravity height, which is the um, the combined mass of your rider and bike together, and its centre gravity uh, in a certain gear, uh, your 100% will cancel it completely. So this is not an exact science at all because obviously you have different gears, you have different size riders, different size bikes, and all this stuff. So it all varies. Um, so you have to make some assumptions and, and base it on an, like an average and every bike engineer, every company, whatever, will, will have a different idea of what their their their, interpret, their best interpretation of this is. And this comes from experience and testing and stuff. Um, so yeah. And then the last one, the anti-rise. When you brake on a bike, it's very easy to, to test. Um, you roll, uh, get some speed on a flat ground in a cut park, and then apply the back brake, but without locking the wheel. You'll notice that your suspension uh, will either extend, compress, or stay level. And the 100% anti-rise is when your suspension stays level. Um, if you're somewhere between zero and 100, it will rise. Um, but the closer you get to 100, the less it rises, and the closer you get to zero, the more it rises. And then if you're over 100, it compresses. So this, for me, is one of the most important, especially for a downhill bike, is one of the most important aspects of how a bike behaves. Uh, because on downhill bike, your um, braking is such a huge aspect of going fast, weirdly. But it is, if you, of course, you would downhill. No, races, no, of so. course. If you can efficient and brake hard, and the bike can perform under that, so where's your optimum then for a downhill bike? Or you know, obviously there's challenges because if you go too much in one way with that, you give up on other ones. There's no sort of perfect size fits all. Yeah, it's exactly. And uh, bike engineering is all about compromise, uh, balancing, and compromise. You have to find the best. Uh, compromise that best suits what you want the bike to do um, and usually if you want something you have to give up something else it's the fact like uh, so um, there are there are some things that you just don't do um, some you do sometimes see them still in bikes now these don't do things but it's getting less and less <laughs> um, most bikes on the market now are, are generally pretty good and they're just a let's say a different uh, interpretation of how to do it, how to do, yeah, how to how to design it for the braking response or the pedaling response or whatever. Um, so for braking, it's really like um, it's it's a difficult one. I mean, okay, I per but perfect it. world, perfect world. If you weren't able to give up something too much, what what would you what, what characteristics would you like in this this braking side of it? Uh, uh, I mean, you want a moon on a stick. You want yeah. I want my cake and eat it too. Of course yeah, I do. You, you know me. Uh, so you would want a bike that was um, uh, geometrically completely stable. It doesn't extend or compress under braking, so that it's predictable. Um, and you also want a bike that maintains traction. 
under braking and tracks the ground, right? So the braking is efficient, um, but you can't have uh, both on with braking. You can go towards 100% and you get a, a very stable bike. Um, you can go towards uh, 0% and have a bike that feels very comfortable, but it, it'll um, tend to uh, pitch forward when you brake. And in my experience, very more experienced races tend to um, be okay with riding a bike more towards 100%, um, i.e. a bike that remains more level because they prefer this uh, uh, feeling of stability but they're able to ride at a at a level and experience um, and a pace where they don't necessarily need the comfort. They're able to uh, brake in the, the correct sections. They're av- able to avoid braking bumps, pick lines, drop their heels, and and deal with the braking much better than uh, I can or like the the average Joe rider who might prefer a bike they jump on a bike that has a very low anti-rise and like wow this brakes this is amazing but then you put a downhill world cup racer on it and they're they're like i can't ride this it's almost dangerous <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah that's so interesting. for for let's say the the gambler we we have a balance um of anti-rise around 50 60 percent i think um which provides it provides some a balance between the geometry stability and and keeping the traction uh under braking so um yeah but then you'll see many you'll see many uh uh um downhill bikes that are very high anti-rise especially the uh high pivots have a very very high anti-rise um but you'll find that these um these bikes will be geometry geometrically stable under braking um or even squat under braking but when you you squat too much at the back under braking you're storing all that energy in the shock and that energy has to be released somehow so as soon as you if you're going over braking bumps you have to imagine that your uh, even the best tuned suspension in the world never tracks the ground perfectly it's going from peak to peak of the bumps and so as soon as it comes off and the, the wheel is floating in the air that shock that's compressed because you were braking on the bump before wants to release this energy so it'll release this energy directly into the next bump ah. and and this is the this is the feeling that you get um, on a bike with a high anti-rise of this dang 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 through braking bumps. That's my theory anyway. But I, I think a downhill racer, a good downhill racer like you, um, they're able to deal with that um, partly because they choose better lines and they brake in better places. But they're able to deal with that um, better than a than an average Joe like myself. No, I, well, I'm joining the average Joe party anyway, so I'm learning through this this podcast. Uh, Your self-proclaimed washed-up downhiller. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm not choosing the best lines. Uh, that's for sure anymore because I don't really care. I'm just out there to have fun, and I think this new bike does that. Uh, I I just was blown away by it, and I guess like you say, it's gone more to modern trail geometry because you don't give up anything on the climbing. So you've steepened that that C-tube, but you've given us more reach. So uh, what were some of the other challenges uh, designing this new bike? You know, it can't just be uh, rainbows and butterflies designing new bikes. Um, the one aspect is the linkage is um, a quite difficult part of the bike uh, because obviously we, we the shock is inside, so we have to transfer the torque from 
of the linkage from the outside to the inside of the frame. We have a linkage with a spline on it. And the spline under our testing uh, testing loads that we put it under, the torque that has to transfer is incredible. Like uh, twice as much as uh, I think we we were laughing about it in our engineering team because we were trying to figure out a way to like describe it, um, as you say, a bit like less engineering. And it's somewhere over 600 Newton meters. So a Newton meter is pushing one Newton of force on a, on an arm of one meter. But to give put that in context, someone that might know, if you if you take a, over here in Europe, we have Volkswagen T6 van, has a two liter diesel. These things generate about half that torque at like their peak engine torque. So 300 and something Newton meters. So in our test standard, at the peak torque load going through our linkage is more than double uh, a Volkswagen T6 or something like that. There you go. You heard it here first. Can we, <laughs> so can we stand we, more we, than two T6s? Something like that, yeah. I mean, it's a bit bit of a loose comparison, but... Um, it needs, so basically, it's it's got to it's got to it's got to withstand a lot, and it's got to be light. So this is a very heavily engineered part. It goes through a lot of finite element element analysis. Um, it's made out of seventy seventy five aluminium, which is basically the strongest alloy we can use. Um, and we do a lot of testing on it. We do testing on the linkage before we've even made a frame. So um, we have uh, like a test jig. Uh, that we we put the linkages on and, and stress test them through hundreds of thousands of cycles to make sure there's margin and overload test them as well to see how they break and things like this. So we break and test many linkages before we've actually even laid up a frame <clears throat> on this bike. So that is a challenge, that one, to do this and to package it small enough to have a small enough bearing uh, and a light enough link. Um, all of the integration of the frame, like the shock with the seat post, very difficult. We managed to improve the, the dropper post compatibility um, over the last genius, despite having a shock inside. Routing all the cables everywhere. Um, yeah, it's a lot of, and then obviously like the, the layup uh, takes a long time to still make a bike that is very light and stiff um, and, and integrated as well. Um, and what's exciting is um, the aluminum one, which some people say, are oh, people making aluminum ones just a more cost-effective, but not here in the engineering side. And looking at those presentations and how much effort, design, cost went into delivering a high-end aluminum bike. I mean, how many different pieces are form part of that frame in an aluminum one? So um, there's around 30 different parts on the aluminum frame. Um the engineer on this was Etienne. Etienne Charouin is uh, the French engineer on the team. Um, and um, at the product launch, he did a nice presentation on this. And hopefully, in the by the time this podcast goes out, there will be some pictures of all the cut frames and all the pieces that he he did for this uh, for the presentation. Um, but yeah, we we spend uh, the the alloy the alloy bikes can often get overlooked because like. You know, the test bikes are often the all singing, all dancing, top of the range, uh, ultimate models. But the alloy bike gets as much uh, as much attention as the, the carbon models. It's just a different challenge using a different material. And um, we do everything in-house. We design all 
of the forging parts, all of the, the tubing. We work very closely with one of the best factories for this. Um, to we, We've had to really push the limits of what is being possible on some hydroforming and stuff like this to be able to to get the tube shapes um, and to integrate the shock inside. And and if you see a silhouette of the alloy model, you can't you can't tell the difference. Like until you see the molds, uh, sorry the molds, the welds, you can't tell the difference that it's between the alloy and carbon. And you've seen the bike, you and when it's I mean when the raw one it looks amazing. So, so, so uh, yeah, I'm going to put it on my Christmas list. Carbon. I think. Yeah, I think it's, Brendan said he wants one as well. It's just, uh, it's really awesome to see people invest and put this much effort into an aluminium version mm. um, because then the customer can choose. Uh, it's yeah. a high-end bike, um, and if you prefer aluminium or maybe in your price bracket, that works out because of the spec. I think it's really cool, and it's, and it's needed these days. Yeah, and I, I was listening to your last podcast where you had discussion with your friend from South Africa, and I, I remember he was saying, oh, I wish some brands would do high-end uh, high-end alloy bike. And you were like, oh, watch this space. So Yeah. Voila, no, and, and, and he's dealing with it every day with his site and testing bikes and stuff. And, and South Africa is maybe a unique market. Not everyone can afford 10,000 euro bikes uh, very easily. Um, and I think it's definitely needed. So it's awesome to see it but i was blown away at the effort and just the single uh, tube what it goes through the process so that was that was awesome to see etienne uh, speak about that and then we've got uh, genius st super trail so probably more something like a washed up downhill like me it's probably going to end up on but then you you're building the you're just building a bike in the genius model that that suits everyone and it's not just like you give something away so it suits everyone. You've brought out two different models. Um, that's pretty cool with the normal Genius and then the Genius ST. Yes. Uh, just before we go on to Genius ST, I should say with the alloy bike, the what's quite cool about that is that all the features, um, like all the details, all the features that we have on the carbon bike, the highest end model, uh, you can get them on the alloy. So SAG indicator, all the, like, the details, um, uh, of the frame, the integrated cable routing is all filters down to the to the lowest alloy model. So um, this this is really a nice nice thing to have. Like the the alloy model is not really it's yeah it's obviously a change in material, but it's we don't really cut any corners elsewhere on the bike. So this is really nice uh, detail. Yeah, it seems seem other times the aluminium it's kind of like a copy paste and okay we need to do the aluminium one and we'll just do it. But this one seems almost like its own bike had to be designed yeah yeah that's for sure yeah yeah and then the st model yeah this is um um this is an interesting uh addition should we say i think the the on the genius line it works really well because this bike in this trail category especially for us because traditionally we have been um a little bit more travel uh, because of our twin lock system, suspension system, we've been a little bit more travel on across the range than competitors. So our um, the last Genius was 150, 150 travel, and it was going up against 130, 140 travel bikes in the same category. Um, the new Genius is a 150 at the back, 160 at the front. Um, but because it's 
this travel and um, it's capable. People are using it for like everything from multi-day big alpine epics to uh, shuttling in finale with their mates or something like this. And it's really blurring. It's a, blurring a huge category. And so to have two models um, where we have the, let's say, traditional style genius with the full twin lock um, system, um, the highest end model being the ultimate, and then it really complements having an ST model, um, which um, is really there for, let's say, the guys like you who are, who are really in it for more for the down, and it's more tailored, like its percentage to up versus down is more tailored towards the down. And uh, for me personally as well, this this is something that um, I guess I've maybe always ridden my geniuses a little bit like this as well, um, just because I um, I like to have extra yeah the extra capability when you when you want it going uh, when you when you head down I guess. Um, so yeah, the two models are, are I think very complementary on this on on the genius range, and they work well together. You have an ST. What, how do you uh, do? You get on with this? Uh, <laughs> amazingly, amazingly. So yeah, I'm grinning from ear to ear when I saw it, but especially when I when I rode it, and I, I think it's great. It just depends where you ride predominantly. But then the great thing is, say you pick the the the, the genius. Um, with the headset cups that you guys obviously work with your team there so you can literally change the head angle by just rotating the headset cups yes exactly yeah so same similar headset system we use on the new spark um, you can you don't need the headset press tool you don't you can just uh, drop the fork out you don't need to change um, take out any of the cables you can just pull the cups out and rotate them so you get a plus minus 0. 0.6 degree headset so the the traditional genius non-st model comes with the headset in the plus position um which gives you off the top of my head no actually not off the top of my head because i'm going to refer to the geo chart so i don't get it wrong <laughs> head tube angle 65.1 and then an st model will give you um it comes specced with the headset in the slack position so that will be 63.9 that's awesome. No, I, I like that because, I mean, if you ride predominantly on flatter trails or something at home, but then you end up going to the Alps or something, you know, you maybe go with a normal genius, right? Um, but then you can flip the cups and just get a little bit more sort of head angle if you're going in the steep sections or in the Alps or something like that and vice versa. If you end up going with your mates on some trails that are a lot flatter, you can go, mm -hmm. Bike's feeling a little bit sluggish. Why not just flip the headset cap? I think that's that's pretty cool and and very unique. Yeah, it's a nice uh, nice feature. And actually, the um, the difference between Genius and Genius ST <coughs> ST is Super Trail. In case anyone was wondering, <coughs> um, the frames are all the same, tested to the same high standard. Um, but um, the so the headset cup is different, uh, different position, as I said. The the four, the travel is the same on both bikes, um, but the crucial difference is that the traditional ultimate bike comes with the full twin lock system. So this is three position, open traction mode and lockout on both the shock and the fork, which has been very popular for us for many years. And then the ST model has a brand new float X nude shock, 
um, which is an extremely capable uh, shock based on the damping and airspring architecture of the very good Float X from Fox, but it has the addition of our um, twin lock technology. Um, but we do not connect the fork on the ST. So the fork uh, on the ST comes with the full grip two damper. Uh, it depends on the model, um, but the ones with the Fox have a full grip two damper. So you have full adjustability on the fork. And then the shock is the Float X nude with low speed compression damping. Um, and it still has the air chamber change um, uh, of the uh, of the twin lock system. So those are the main differences. So it's just a little bit tweaked for uh, guys like me and you, maybe that, that prefer to be knob, twiddler, knob twiddlers, so we say, <laughs> adjusting the suspension, like to tweak it a bit for the downhill and stuff like this. So um, yeah, this is how I think they complement each other quite well. Yeah, I think it's just, you can totally tailor and optimize this bike exactly to, to what you want with a little bit of leeway in case you go ride in different conditions. I think it, I think it's great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's a bike that you will, yeah, as I said, you ride, uh, you can throw some light tires on it and, and do some multi-day epics, or you can, yeah, throw some inserts in some heavier tires and, uh, and do some more, uh, um, yeah, some light shuttling and some more, uh, capable stuff on it. So it's, it's really a bike that's used for a lot of, uh, a broad range of, uh, riding. Well, there you have it. Unless I've missed something, I think that's quite a fitting way to end the chapter of the engineering and the background um, around the genius. We're going to hear, so stick around. That's been Tim on the engineering side. And we are going to dive into the marketing of how you get a bike to market, how you keep it a secret. There's all the things that, and how Tim, uh, maybe actually before you go, I need to give you your say because we're going to hear from Julian from marketing. And he's going to talk maybe how much marketing is maybe more important. And you guys argue that engineering is more important. What about that uh, relationship between engineering team and marketing team? Well, you can't have one without the other. Did Julian say something differently? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not allowed to tell you. For the listeners, it's going to be a surprise. No, no. No, no. I talked to him. I talk to him offline all the time about it, but I think yeah. you guys complement each other so much. And he has to we maybe to, help yeah. uh, take what you guys describe and then give it to someone that's never really even ridden a bike or someone that is uh, very educated. And he's got to sort of take those two messages and, and sort of meet in the middle with them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And me and Julian have known each other for a while now. He's been at the company for a long time. We're good friends. And he's involved in a project really also from the beginning, from the kickoff. So he has an idea of what's coming and he'll already start formulating like ideas or like, um, yeah, ways in which he can market, uh, the bike. And usually, yeah, we get to the point where we're like, okay, we need to really start diving properly into how we're going to market whatever and do think about product launches, presentations. And he's, uh, engineers are, uh, let's can be let's say very technical overly technical and julian always brings us back down to uh, a level where we can actually uh um communicate it properly with some <laughs> to normal people i guess <laughs> we can get a little bit too carried away with, with some details but some people are really into technical details but in the end it needs to be uh uh general public needs to be able to digest it <laughs> um and it needs to be understandable so uh 
we need his uh, input to be able to do that for sure. And uh, we, we, yeah, we work, we work a lot together on this stuff. No, that's brilliant, Tim. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, some people are super into the details when they go and read a bike review. Some people are more into the story and the branding and and all that. So thanks so much to you, Tim, for giving us a little bit of insight into, say, how a new bike comes to market, plus how um, the Genius and the Genius ST has come to the public. And guys, stick around because we're going to jump over to who we were speaking about, Julian Wagner, over on the marketing side. Right, now we've had an awesome bit of feedback from the engineering side, and obviously that is a critical part to the bike. Now let's move over to the marketing side, because you can't just build a great bike. You've obviously got to get it to the people. You've got to tell a story. And I've brought in Julian Wagner, that is bike marketing lead. Uh, Welcome to the show, Julian. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now um, this is an exciting part. Uh, I know it's probably quite tough to keep a bike secret. There was an embargo on this bike. I was lucky enough to see it. You've obviously seen from drawings to stories of the bike. What's it like keeping a bike like this secret when you know how awesome it's going to be? Yeah, it's um, it's a good problem to have. It's, it's also something that's changed a little bit with our, I guess you could say, our mindset in the last couple of years. I mean... I've been, I've been at the company now for 10 years and I've seen uh, the approach for embargoes evolve um, for quite some time. It's, it's hard keeping a bike a secret because on, on one hand, you know, you want to get the bike out to people ahead of time. If it's athletes, if it's journalists, um, you know, team managers, people, anyone that can test the bike and give feedback or f- for those people who are then part of the, the journalistic process, let's say that do reviews, so on and so forth. But that's once you have a physical bike uh, available. There are loads of other tools that we use internally, you know, workbooks, uh, online websites for dealers, stuff like this, where, where things are technically visible much earlier on. So we have to put a lot of uh, practices in place to make sure that we can keep stuff as hidden as possible. There, there's always the risk, right? Um, there's always the risk that something goes out. It's just about figuring out the best ways to, let's say, manage that risk within a, a reasonable time frame um, to make sure that nothing gets shown too early. Uh, because, of course, the risk of showing something too early is that if you have previous year stock um, in shops, as you would know, this is a shop owner, if, if you've got uh last year's genius uh still in stock and and something leaks and then people don't want to buy that genius anymore because they want the new one that's a problem for you guys so we put a lot of care into figuring out how to keep something quiet while knowing full well that we must take a risk uh to do what we need to do as well to get prepared for for a product launch so and what about uh you know some companies i don't know if i see it all in the bike industry but the propaganda of having something leak you know to create this hype super early on so we we have done this quite a bit in the past um you'll you'll also sometimes find situations where having a leak is maybe less problematic let's say for that sales situation or with the the stock situation um but we have done stuff uh not with genius but with bikes like with spark or with scale in the past where we have you know the the cross-country team or nino and kate racing bikes uh well in advance before they're launched um, if we do that, it's because we've calculated, you know, like the the the, the pitfalls of that, if you will, um, versus versus the cool buzz that it can create. Um, we we do love sometimes to have a, a cheeky bike in the wild from time to time, 
uh, we currently have one of those now. Uh, so it, it is something that can be done. We'll do it more, um, I guess, with, with race teams and race bikes. If we look at the, the downhill factory a couple of years ago when that, when that team launched, you know, the, the current gambler at the time was four or five years deep. Um, so it was pretty clear that there was a new one coming. Um, and from the moment that team started, uh, well, actually from the moment of the team announcement, they were already on the new carbon gambler. So, you know, there's some, some situations where you want also the people to be that are racing to be on the best product and the most modern and, and fastest product. And, and then your hand in a sense is a little bit forced. Uh, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, then it's also cool to create some buzz. Uh, yeah, there's always just kind of like this, uh, this, this fine line um, between too early and not early enough or strategically intelligent or just, you know, oh shit, that shouldn't have happened. Uh, that we try to walk in and do it in a way that really serves the best interests of everyone involved. So athletes here, um, you know, everyone internally at, at Scott and then also our distribution network. So we're always kind of juggling everyone's interests to make sure that we we don't deserve anyone in any way when we do something like that. Yeah, so we jump straight into it. And I definitely want to get into, say, this engineering story I've told, which is like the technology versus maybe your side is like the brand awareness, the coolness of the brand. And, and Scott's really worked on that, I would say, in the last, say, seven years. I've been with you guys for six. So that's been amazing to see. But maybe before that... Help me understand your role. I've called you bike marketing lead, but I think it's super interesting to understand the roles of, of people at these companies. And there's so many people that work in the bike industry to get a bike like this to market. Yeah, so my role in a nutshell is to lead the team that is in charge of all bike marketing at Scott. Um, so working with me is we have, you know, someone in charge of mountain bike marketing, someone in charge of road bike marketing, uh, a, a gravel marketing manager. Uh, we have someone in charge of like our women's and our family and kids programs, uh, so on and so forth. So pretty much I head the team that is then, you know, responsible for creating all of the product related content, sports marketing, managing content on the website, uh, creating all of our print materials. So if it's print ads or workbooks or catalogs, I mean, anything that's, technically uh, product related and or brand related from uh, from a, a bicycle standpoint is is managed by the team that I that I work with specifically when it comes to you know a, an event like this now I spent many years doing specifically mountain bike marketing um, and, and now I'm in a position where I'm trying to do my best to enable those who are in those positions uh, to do the the best job that they can you know, and to kind of maybe transmit a little bit my experience uh, from from the past when I was not to say in the trenches, that sounds a little bit dire, but when I was actually, you know, doing doing the, um, the really product specific stuff uh, for mountain bikes. So like with Spark in the past, I think this will probably be my 10th, 10th bike or 10th product launch that we're doing this year. So, uh, yeah. It's it's hard to always answer the question what is your role in detail because there are lots of little little things that you know also have to be done you know the the less exciting stuff like budgeting, um, managing industry relationships uh, from from time to time time to time doing uh, and, and this year well aware of but uh, yeah it's just kind of like the, um, the the relationship building the you know at events sitting down with people having a beer like keeping the good vibes going I mean a, a lot of the industry. Is, is based off relationships. I'd say in, in many senses, a lot of stuff gets done on just maintaining good relationships. 
Uh, it's super important. It's it's still a small industry despite this um, this size that seems to be quite evident. You know, I think we've we've all seen and, and many people who maybe aren't involved in cycling but are interested in it throughout the pandemic have 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 realized that there has been a, a huge influx in newcomers to the the, the industry and, and a big boom. But the the footprint is quite huge. But I think the the core working groups in all brands and, and the brands in general, I mean, we're still a relatively small industry where everyone kind of knows each other and, and everyone ultimately works together to a certain extent to achieve the same goals. So in a sense, I'm kind of one of the guys here at the company that tries to make sure that we can maintain that. Um, and then also, as I mentioned, really help the team that sits below me to, to do the best that they can to keep creating interesting content, uh, to help out dealers to do everything that needs to be done with regards to our bikes. Okay, well, now my head hurts just thinking about the amount of people just in the marketing team, in and around your team, and I've met a lot of them. And that leads on to this sort of uh, story of technology versus maybe the story of the bike or marketing. And, and you can help me understand that because we've heard a lot from the engineering and I was you know, at the launch and, and watching all the presentations. Now that leads to, okay, do you tell the story of the technology, how good the bike is? Uh, is it content driven of, you know, say the athletes that ride these bikes that people want to aspire to be, you know, the next Brendan Faircloth, you know, what's that fine line like? The answer is yes. <laughs> to what? Yes to all. Next <laughs> question. To everything. No. So, so what's, what's tricky, um, especially with a bike like Genius is that the target market for a bike like a Genius is huge. Yes. We're selling, we're selling this bike to anyone uh, from, you know, a, a, a guy or a, or a girl going into a shop for their first time and just wanting to buy a full suspension mountain bike because their friends are into cycling or whatever. And they just go in, they don't, they maybe don't even know who Scott is. Um, and they're just going into a shop and buying a bike. And it just so happens to be a Scott dealer and uh, someone on the shop floor introduces them to a genius 940 or whatever and says this is the new latest and greatest this is what you should buy so that's one segment the other segment would be someone you know like yourself let's say uh, who's been involved in cycling in whatever capacity for many years and is like really into the technical details and super interested in everything that we have to say from like a product standpoint we could call them an, an expert in a sense and everyone in between right so for a bike like Genius, you you really have to come up with a way of creating content that can serve the people who are interested in shock internals and actually know what they're talking about when it comes to it. And also people, and I don't say this in a pejorative sense, but who really just don't necessarily have a clue from a technical standpoint, which is totally fine. In fact, I'd say that most bike brands, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking for, for other people here, but most bike brands probably sell more bikes to people that don't necessarily have too much product knowledge than to the people that are really in that niche uh, spectrum of, of uh, very knowledgeable individuals when it comes to, to bikes, you know, uh, the, the amount of people that you sell a bike to that know why a four bar linkage uh, would be, you know, different or better than a single pivot is very small. So on one hand, we want to communicate that premium element, the technological element, the, the, you know, the, the prowess that are, that our company has when it comes to making bikes. But on the other hand, we also just have to really market the bike as something that can provide someone with enjoyment. And that's uh, really tricky because 
because you have to do both and you have to do both well. And you have to have more or less one message if you can that reaches both target markets. But how do you create a message that's like technically sufficient for the people that care that doesn't alienate the people that have no idea when it comes to the technical you know, side of biking? So it is a big challenge. We, we as a company um, for many years have always focused on performance, right? So we're a big race brand. Racing is our heritage. It's our number one focus. Racing is super important and it leads to a lot of our developments, but if you only focus on racing, then you completely ignore a huge part of the target market that maybe has no interest in racing or for a bike like G a Genius, which is not a race bike, you know, you have to make sure that you speak to that market that just wants the bike for fun um, or wants the bike, you know, something like a Genius where they can maybe even go do a cross country race on the weekend, but then they want to go ride enduro style trails or all mountain stuff or ride up lifts or whatever um, at the same time. So. It's, it's an incredible challenge to have one message and one kind of line of thought, if you will, for a bike that serves so many different purposes. Yeah, no, it, it seems like such a huge challenge. Like you say, you've built a bike, especially this new version of the Genius and then the Genius you know, ST. It, that Genius model can serve everyone, like you said. That was probably a conscious thought going into, obviously from engineering side, but in the marketing side as well. Like, you know, what bike can someone walk into a bike shop and and anyone could actually ride that bike you know and i've seen that at the shop for sure there's people that are, are sort of progressing past marathon and xc especially in south africa and then i'm saying but these new bikes climb you barely notice the difference in the climbing and when we point it downhill you're going to be safer i'm not saying you need it because you're a former downhill world cup rider or you're an enduro specialist i'm saying i think it's safer for you to be on a bit more travel because of how well it climbs and stuff. Yeah, and, and you know, one thing that we've done, we, we saw this with New Spark last year, now with New Genius, is that compared to the previous iterations, we wanted to keep the climbing capabilities the same while improving descending capabilities. So you saw that with Spark with the move from 100 mil travel front and rear to 120 mil front and rear. It still climbs very well, but it descends even better. Same here with Genius, is that we want the Genius to still be the type of bike that can climb all day long comfortably in a good position. But we also wanted to give it a little bit of like a, a, a ransom-esque vibe, let's say on the descents, because that's also what the demands are, you know, when, when it comes to modern trail bikes. And going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, it's it's not only the, the target market individual that changes, it's also where that individual is based that affects how we market the bike. So what uh, the our target market in Germany is after when it comes to a trail bike will be a little bit different than what our target market in the U.S. is after when it comes to a trail bike. Um, if you live in Bentonville, Arkansas, which you know is one of the, the main hubs for mountain biking now in the U.S., it's not the Alps, right? So um, whereas where we live here in Switzerland, within an hour's drive, we've got some of the best mountain bike riding you can do in big mountains in the world, right? So that's really where the, the genesis of a bike like a Genius is with things like our proprietary suspension, either with the new Flodex Nude on the ST or with Twin Lock on Genius 900. It's like we really, it's, it's very cliche to say, but we really wanted to come out with a bike that was capable of doing everything. It might not be the best at everything, right? A Genius will never descend as well as a downhill bike in a bike park. And it'll probably never climb as quickly as a lightweight 120 mil cross country race bike. But in that zone in between, it's gonna be pretty damn good at doing a lot of stuff. 
And that's maybe, it's tough to define what the modern trail bike is, but that's maybe a good definition of it is that, um, you know, uh, what's the expression, a jack of all trades, but a master, master of, none. of none. Yeah. And again, I don't say that in a, in a negative sense, but we want a bike that can all around ride just about anything and do it well enough to get you away with whatever it is that you're riding with a smile on your face time and time again. But I mean, if you think about it, it's not possible to be the master of all because you know you have to give up on some it's same when you build a downhill race machine it could be the mm-hmm. biggest big hit bike but it might not pedal as well so you know you have to pick and choose but i think this day and age bikes are obviously going up in price that's that's a given as well as inflation and the cost of groceries so you know we're mm-hmm. all in this together but if you are looking for one bike then you are going to give up a little bit if you want something that climbs insanely well maybe you go for a spark right but then if you say but i really like downhill or shuttles or or going to the alps well then you need a second bike so you guys have clearly positioned us to say look if you guys really want a bike that does it all we've moved it along on like you say on the descending side you know slacken the head angle but plus those headset cups i mean you can change the headset angle if you're changing sort of locations where you ride within within minutes so that's pretty cool Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, we, we've, how should I put this? We've taken into account the fact that people need different bikes for different reasons, right? I think every bike brand does this. And, and, and that's kind of why we have the lineup that we have now. So if we look at the trail market, you have Genius 900, Genius ST. So again, super tough to define what that trail market is because a trail bike for everyone can be something else. Um, but at least we have this workable range now where we have more of like a traditional short travel trail bike with Spark 900. We've got a short travel trail bike that's focused a little bit more on the downhill side of things with Spark ST, you know, with a, with a fork that has either a, a grip two damper um, or something more advanced uh, from from RockShox or um, from, I believe, Olin's. No, I think it comes with either a Fox with a grip two or a pike. And then, um, and then Genius 900, which is our more of our traditional Genius trail bike that comes with a twin lock front and rear. So this is someone who's really looking for all day versatility. Um, and then something a little bit more aggressively spec towards the downhills with the new Genius ST that has this new Flodex nude from Fox that you've heard about, of course, from engineering. So we have this big workable spectrum so that anyone, wherever they are in the world, can pick one of our trail bikes for the terrain that they're most close to and be able to use it, knowing full well that the capability of the bikes is greater than it ever has been. And if they want to push the limit in one direction or the other with the bike that they have, they will be able to. And that's kind of the idea, right? Um, we're, we're a huge believer in having horses for courses um, and, and giving people the option to choose whatever is best for the region that they, they ride the most in and allowing them to, you know, sometimes dabble in the further reaches of the capabilities of the bikes uh, to see how far they can go with their bikes, both from, you know, maybe a more progress- progressive sense and then also maybe from a more performance-oriented sense, uh, let's say on the race side, for example. Yeah, that's incredible because normally you just go in and you shop on your price and then you get different spec for that. But now you can go in and and, and really fine-tune, almost custom build a bike for yourself, but you guys have given those options with the ST uh, versus the normal one with those headset cups so you can bring an ST back to a normal genius in theory if, if you end up going on a trip where the trails are maybe not as steep or they're more flowy trails. And then like you say, What's cool is some people didn't understand twin lock on Scott enough. But once I had some customers ride it, they were like, oh, I totally get it. 
this, this is great. And now you go with track lock, which is on the SD version, which some people said, you know what, I'd rather give up a little bit of my climbing capabilities, but now I've got the grip two damper. So that's for that like guy that feels he's extreme or, or is extreme. Yeah. You know, we we're firm believers in our, in our twin lock technology. It's also simply due to the fact that we use it all the time. And, and like you mentioned, once you use it and spend some time with it, um, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's funny because then you get so used to it that it almost becomes essential to the bikes that you ride. Um, but we do understand that there's also a target market that doesn't necessarily want the fork to be coupled to the, to the system. They want their own fork. They want something with a, you know, a little bit more adjustability. There are pros and cons to that as well. Um, but we want to give people the, the choice and, and more than ever now we have a product lineup that does afford people the choice that if they want to, to do the thing where they have, uh, you know, a grip to damper with all the adjustability in the world on their fork, um, but then still have the, the track lock so that they can access the three different modes on the shock, which is also super cool. I mean, you know, if we put it on the bike, it's because one, we believe in it. And two, we have feedback that it works, um, market feedback, sales feedback, people do like it. Um, so people can now choose and, and, and kind of pick the style of ride that they want within that trail category, which again, serves a huge portion of all end consumers uh, around the world. Um, so the more choice in our opinion, the, the better. Uh, and it's something that, yeah, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty fond of and we're pretty excited to release and we think it's going to get a good, uh, a good reception. Well, I'm obviously sounding biased, but I firmly agree because riding that thing for the first time was incredible. I think everything came together, you know, the technology, um, how the industry has gone with modern trail bikes. But what I'm curious about is internally between marketing a bike or seeing what the outside industry is doing versus the engineering. What's it like those two divisions talking to each other, with each other and, and who sort of, you know, like, engineering wants to go this way and then you guys say look we respect that but it might be tough to sell or that might not do as well in the market what's that challenge like it, it kind of is a challenge i mean we, we can't forget that product management is, is obviously the 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 side of um the company that drives the development of the bikes you know and makes a little bit those decisions with what direction do we want to go into you know a, a great way to talk about this is let's look at the integration that we've done so integration has been a huge topic the last couple of years. Um, with Spark, we were already on a really good platform, um, super successful platform. Uh, of course, if you look at the, the success that the Spark has had in the last 10, 15 years, um, how do you make a bike like that better? So we looked at two things. One was to increase travel to make it more capable on the ever more demanding cross-country World Cup tracks. Um, and then also for this short travel trail spectrum. But then two, you know, we were looking at look and, and, and design. And while for sure there are um, visual properties that are, that are cool with the integration, you know, there's also a lot that can be said about how it helps us to develop better bikes. Um, you'll, you know, you will have heard from Tim that of course, not having cable routing ports in the, the head tube of the bike allows us to do some structural things that are quite interesting. They allow us to save weight in that area so that we can put it somewhere else, make other parts of the frame better. So there are actually, um, you know, product benefits that are quite uh, evident to us here at the company. And then how do we figure out how to work with those engineers to communicate that to the end consumer is, is where the, not to, I wouldn't say the challenges, but that's kind of where the, the fun part is, right? So 
it's it's always a good back and forth of like okay here are these concepts that an engineer can understand an engineer can prove uh the numbers show it on the computer the finite element analysis shows that it is better so on and so forth and going back to that concept of how do we come out with one message one line of communication that works for uh the super techie people and the people who don't really care so especially when it comes to the technical stuff you know and this is the same for road bikes for gravel bikes for triathlon bikes for mountain bikes everywhere how do we translate super technical information that proves a benefit into layman's terms that anyone can understand while also making sure that the person that is really interested into that super technical stuff gets their fix and this is where there's a lot of back and forth with the engineers to be like okay so and, and this is something i've done a lot in the past especially with someone like tim who you had on earlier we'll be like tim we, at the beginning of every project i'll have a meeting with engineering we'll have a meeting with engineering and we just break down the product what's good what's different what's better than the previous bike what's new and noteworthy you know give me give me your hardcore technical explanation of everything that you want us to talk about on this bike i take those notes i go back and i put it through my you know marketing brain which if anyone asks is a superior style of brain um, <laughs> i was going to say <laughs> between the engineering and the marketing it never ends with you guys bantering each other i almost uh, dumbed myself down there um, <laughs> no but what what i'll do by that is that i put it through a filter let's say and regurgitate that information back to the engineers in a way that i think most people will be able to understand it so back to like plain english basically yeah but also also like you know i'm i'm kind of I, i guess my background before working in the bike industry is i did consulting for product development so i know a little bit their speak i I'm, i know enough to be dangerous about it i'm by no means an engineer um but i i can understand it quite easily and i guess after all these years you know i've i've learned a little bit more than than the average person when it comes to the way that they go about explaining their bikes but i think it really is important you know how how can i make sure that someone who doesn't have a technical background can get the benefit of this technical information with regards to the bike right so that's the process is it starts with the engineers giving me everything in a super technical sense or giving us as to say the team we take it we transform it into um a format that we think maybe is a little bit uh softer on the ears let's say give it back to the engineers and work back and forth until we get to a happy medium that they can work with also because it is in tune with what they're saying but that we can work with because it's just a little bit more presentable for the general public let's say so it doesn't really it doesn't really diminish what they're saying it's just saying it in a way that's uh a little bit sometimes less dense or more comprehensible or really focuses on the the main points um or the the ends let's say and not all of the means to those ends um so yeah it is it is a a, a big process and sometimes there's some stuff that has to be explained technically i mean you can't you can't explain uh a, a nude shock in detail in simple terms right suspension is really complicated but what i can explain is that okay well with twin lock for example your shock or with the floatex nude all nude shocks you know you have three modes on the shock one that's great for climbing one that's great for descending and then depending on the shock one that's really good for like you know 
punchy single track where you still need traction, but you still need a good uh, uh, pedal platform. And on the Floatex Nude, one that, you know, well, actually, if you've, if you're in an area where you're riding some single track, but then you can jump into like a bike park lap or something like that, and you want a bit more progression in your shock, then boom, you just hit the switch and the volume is closed off a little bit and you have instantly, it's like putting more volume spacers in your shock. So there are ways of explaining technical things in a simple fashion. For some concepts, it's easier than others. Um, but we do work a lot with the engineers just to figure out that when we change that format, it still represents accurately what's going on from an engineering standpoint. Yeah, you almost lost me there, but you 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 brought me back, uh, dumbing mm -hmm. it down. But no, I hear you because that 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 shock is an incredibly complicated and sophisticated shock, and it's unbelievable, especially on this ST to to see the X2 in in the new that you guys have developed closely with Fox. So that is is super interesting. What uh, might be another challenge, or maybe for you it's not a challenge, but uh, the aluminium version versus the carbon version. And in this day and age, it's awesome to see these aluminium version in, in high-end spec to give you that option as well, depending on what type of rider you are or its budget. Can you talk a little bit into that process and the marketing of, of those or decision-making? Yeah, so the the important thing that we try to communicate with our alloy bikes is that we almost put as much, if not more, work into the design and development um, and engineering of the alloy bikes than we do of uh, the carbon bikes. I mean, our alloy bikes aren't just a more affordable version of the carbon bikes, right? They have their own engineers, they have their own teams behind them, their own processes at factories. Like it's really, um, it's really quite detailed, and a lot of thought and, and time goes into developing those. And there's no hiding behind the fact that, you know, from a, from a cost standpoint, they're also the more affordable versions, of course. I mean, uh, that's super important. And we try to more and more do an equal amounts of like content creation with both, right? So, of course, you always have the high-end bikes. If we look at, you know, the race models or high-end trail models or whatever, I mean, these, these are the, the, the big image bikes, the, the bikes that we use to create content to, to sell that dream, so to speak. But then we also want to make sure that we represent um, the more mid-range and let's say, uh, in some cases, entry level, but not always. So like the more, the more, um, uh, or the less extreme in terms of cost uh, bikes, and we want to make sure that we do them justice because they are very good bikes. You know, for sure, alloy versus carbon. There's a weight penalty, but what with the Genius, for example all the benefits that you get from the carbon bike in terms of adjustability, integration, suspension performance, uh, design, so on and so forth, you will find on the alloy bikes as well. And that for us is really important that we don't just do a cheap version for the sake of doing a cheap version, but we do a version that's more affordable while still maintaining all of the technical attributes and you know the, the positive things that come on the carbon bike and having those on an alloy version as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was amazing to see the engineers showing us all the, the parts that go into this alloy version, especially this one to integrate the shock. I mean, I looked at that and I thought, wow, you guys bit off a lot with this aluminium version. And it came out in, in incredible. And, and it's not often I'd want to also ride an aluminium one now that I'm so spoiled and, and being on a carbon one. What's the timeline on these bikes? When did the conversation of this new bike start internally? You know, like for the, because that's kind of what I hope the listeners can get out of this is like how insanely challenging and how long it takes to get a bike like this to market. You know, there's so many parts that need to fit in. Yeah, it's quite a long timeline, actually. I mean, it's probably two and a half to three years. I mean, this is something maybe Tim will have touched on a little bit more in detail, but 
Um, the better way to, to talk about it is that now we're already discussing stuff for the next two model years, of course. So that's um, model year 24, model year 25. So the from ideation to, to completion, at least the, the marketing involvement for Genius would have started at least one and a half or two years ago. Um, and that's just, you know, that, that phase of getting to know the content or getting to know the bike, learning what's important about it, what I was just talking about earlier, that starts very early on. And then from then until, you know, the moment where we actually have journalists at an event uh, to launch a product, it depends on the bike, of course, but it can be anywhere at least uh, from two, two and a half to three years sometimes. Uh, it's quite lengthy. And, and that's a challenge, right? Because, you know, we're already working on bikes for two years time from now we have a good idea of where trends are going and where we'll where we're trying to be and where we're trying to place those bikes in two years but there's always that element um of the unknown you know of of what does the industry do is there a change is something coming so we try to like work in a way that's you, you kind of need a bit of a proverbial crystal ball to be able to make those decisions but there's always a tiny bit of risk involved that maybe Either you, something, you, you would launch something that's maybe too far ahead of its time or something that by the time it gets out is no longer 100% current in every sense of the word. So it's a, it's a cool challenge. Fortunately, that's not my challenge. That's you know the PM department and the, the engineering department. That's what they have to work on. Um, the marketing team just has to be ready to work with whatever that, that situation is at the time of launch and adapting if we need to to make sure that um, that everything is relevant. And, and most of the time it is. I mean, you know, it's, we're not a young company. We've been doing this stuff to a certain extent since 1958. So all, all of that um, knowledge has been uh, transmitted from generation to generation. So we're pretty good at it now. Um, but there's always a little bit of tweaking involved uh, throughout the process, throughout those two to three years, let's say. Um, but yeah, sometimes you just have to plan a little bit in the future and hope that you hit the mark perfectly for when something comes out. And we think that with something like Genius, when it comes out here in just, uh, what is it, in three weeks? No, but when, when this is released, it's out. So you can speak like it's out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but um, that's, uh, we will have launched Genius and hopefully it's, uh, it's right on the money. And, and, and we think it is, you know, we've got people that have been writing it for some time now and. Um, people who have also ridden other bikes, you know, someone like yourself, you know, or Brendan or Remy Absalon, the, the product team here, different people. We've also got journalists on the bikes or by the time this comes out, we'll have had journalists on the bikes for some time. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty stoked on it. But like I said, for the bike that we're going to be launching in two years, which I can't tell you about, obviously, uh, there's a bit of guesswork involved. Sure. Uh, guesswork, but it's like, educated guessing right planning working with people internally working with people like you to get feedback like okay we want to do this new uh model x in two years time like what would you want on it um so we have a a, a group of people that we work with around the world uh to get that information and to, to help us make better educated decisions well in advance before knowing full well what the industry is going to look like in a couple of years from a trend standpoint yeah, and I would guess technology's helped a lot. You know, we're getting shown drawings of X and, and a lot that these engineers can do uh, with technology instead of like rapid prototyping and writing that, et cetera. They kind of know what the kinematics are going to do. And obviously Tim touched on, on all that, but maybe shed some light because you've mentioned the product managers and maybe that PM, so PM stands for product manager, maybe like 
brief overview of what they do. And if you're allowed to, I'd like to understand, are you also involved in the cost analysis point of like, okay, we're going to launch a new bike. What does it cost to make new molds and, and make this really incredible aluminum version and then go, that doesn't really line up. Do those conversations happen behind the scenes? Um, they do. I mean, marketing is involved to a certain extent, but that's mostly something that's done between product management and sales and then all of the different local markets. I mean, they all work very closely together to put together programs that will work. Right. Um, as you, as you mentioned now more than, excuse me, now more than ever, the, the, um, the industry is quite dynamic. Things are changing pretty rapidly. I mean, there's no hiding behind that behind the fact that the pandemic did have a, a, an effect um, both positive and negative on the way that uh, on the way that things are done and the pricing and you know the cost of shipping containers and getting stuff around the world and, and the whole the whole structure has really um, changed quite a lot in the last two years. Um, so PMs pretty much drive drive the the product direction at the company, right? So they're they're on on the on every level, kind of driving. You know, okay, we need to do a new spark. Uh, here's what was good about the last one. Here's the athlete feedback. We worked, you know, checked with Nino and the team, and this is what they want and all that versus what's going on in the industry. Where can we do something better than the competitors? Who do we think have, has a benchmark bike? What are they doing well? What are they not doing well? You know, like this whole discussion is entirely managed by the PMs and then who then work with the engineers uh, to achieve those goals and we work with sales and the local markets to do so in a way that's um, cost effective and, 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 you know, can be applied worldwide from a, a pricing standpoint. And then we're, we're involved a little bit at the beginning for giving feedback for, you know, yeah, we think that's actually a really interesting way to go about this. We think that could really work. We can tell interesting stories there. But then really where we have the, the biggest amount of work is once we've all agreed on those things um, and given our feedback, once we have a direction that we know that we're going in, then that's when the marketing machine get, get, gets kicked into high gear and the planning starts where it's like, okay, so that's the program that's the bike this is the message how do we go and going back to those challenges i mentioned earlier like what sort of portfolio can we put together for this product to do everything that we need to do for all different levels of message receivers if you will so distribution subs distributors dealers kids working on the shop floor people working in warranty departments um so on and so forth but then also all levels of end consumers so um you know, Tim probably talked about like the, the development team. It's more than just engineers. There are designers. There are people that work in the plastics department, the PMs, uh, quality management, people that are working away on test machines, trying to break bikes so that they can learn from it, so on and so forth. Like there's this whole team. And then the marketing team is not just one individual, right? So it's a team of people in marketing plus the e-commerce team, online marketing, web design and development, uh, guys that work in our 3D department to create renders for the bikes and animations for technical documentation, the QM team uh, to make sure that they have all of the documentation that they need for their workbooks that then go to dealers, manuals, so on and so forth. So, I mean, for every bike that comes out, there's probably at least 100 people behind it doing work for a couple of years. I mean, it's, uh, it's actually... How many people you think sort of s s touched this bike? I've never counted, but yeah, at, at least at least a hundred, and and not just at the global headquarters, um, but all over the world, really. That's that's incredible. I think that's a great way to to wrap up. But before I do let you go, uh, let's get your crystal ball out. Where is the industry going? What do you think? What does five years from now look like, or ten years? You know, 
without giving away Scott's secrets. No, it's 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 a cool it's a cool and it's a fun question to ask because I think you'll probably agree. Every brand has good bikes. I mean, we're we're getting to a point now where the end consumer has a very lucky life and a very challenging life at the same time because because the the industry is really strong with regards to product offering, right? Um, which is also also a challenge for us, right? Like, how do we how do we continue to to talk about our bikes in a way or to develop bikes that continue to have a competitive advantage when everything that's coming out nowadays, you know, there are very few shit bikes out on the market. Yeah, it's almost like you would have to try to make a shit one. Like you, you should you shouldn't be able to with all the information out there. Exactly. It's incredibly cool for the end consumer because the choice is insane and really no matter what bike you get depending on how much money you spend like you're gonna enjoy riding it so it's getting to a point where everyone makes a good bike so i'm really curious to see how we continue to design and develop and engineer bikes that are incrementally better um you know on on the road side of things for years we've always talked about marginal gains so even if even if on the road you release an aero bike that's maybe just 10 percent more aerodynamic than the previous one 10 percent uh, if you're racing Milan San Remo uh, over 265k or whatever, like 10% could mean 20 seconds, which is the difference between sometimes finishing first or finishing 60th, right? So will we kind of see that more on the mountain bike side that we move towards uh, incremental gains? I mean, you've already seen this from some brands now. They'll, they'll do like an update where they have like a UDH hanger on the bike now um, or increase, you know, uh, small small capabilities or do a flip chip here or whatever so there's there are more and more companies coming out with small incremental but meaningful changes uh, on bikes uh either bikes come out as new platforms or new iterations so it's tough to say then you also have the e-bike side of things this is probably where technologies are moving a lot faster right still relatively young um i mean in in eight years time or ten years time or whatever if we can release an e-bike that's got crazy amounts of power, but weighs as much as my coil sprung ransom right now. I mean, that's pretty sick, right? You'll be in your forties. That's going to be like your dream bike, right? I'll be in my forties. It's already that's my dream be, bike, man. Yeah. I, I want that now. So, so Chris, crystal ball is tough to say, but all I do know is that bikes will continue to get better, even though today they're already very good. Um, yeah, there will be improvements in materials. There will be improvement in, in weights. Uh, there will be improvements in suspension performance, I'm sure. I mean, the the writing's on the wall with e-bikes that they'll probably continue to get better and better, lighter and lighter, more and more powerful. Um, and all of those combined. Uh, and then who knows? Who knows what the next big innovation is, right? Um, we've already seen that. I mean, in just my 10 years at the company, if I look at what Genius looked like 10 years ago versus what we have today, I mean, it's... Um, it's a hell of a lot of change in a very short amount of time, relatively speaking, uh, which is cool. We're all very lucky to be in the mountain bike industry at this point or in the cycling industry uh, at this point in time, because like I said, the choice, the choice is just incredible. Um, and even, even the shittest bike of today is miles and leagues better than the best bike of 10 years ago. Right. So yeah. Or even three years ago, I would say. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a cool spot to be in and, and it provides us with great challenges to continue to innovate, right? I mean, Scott's mantra is innovation, technology, design, and that 
those three those three topics are pretty essential to saying on top of things in the years to come because um, focusing on those three things with regards to our products is really what's going to continue and in our opinion to set us apart um, from from the rest and, and to continue to challenge us as a brand to to keep making bikes that are better than what we thought were already pretty good when we released them. Well, thanks, Julian. I think that's an epic way to end this and a great uh, synopsis of maybe where the industry is going to go. So thanks to you. Thanks to everyone at Scott and the probably hundreds of people that touched this bike. But I really appreciate getting a insight into how a bike in general, I hope the listeners can understand how a bike in general gets to market and how it gets marketed and designed. So thanks to all the engineering team. And I will link to some resources in the show notes and obviously head over to my Instagram and bike on Scott Instagram for all the latest on this new bike from all the latest reels to technology. Guys, dig into the technology on this bike as well as the marketing story. So yeah, until the next one, hope you enjoyed this episode. You know what to do. Leave a review, subscribe, send it to a friend if you think he can gain some knowledge from it. Till the next one. Peace. Thanks, Andrew.